Join the conversation with Tommy Weber. Pro and college baseball coach Tommy Weber brings you cutting-edge interviews and thought-provoking commentary in a weekly podcast dedicated to baseball, sports, current events, and the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and TommyWeberBaseball.com. And make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TommyWeberBaseball. It's time to get the conversation started, so here's your host, Tommy Weber. From the Gotham Podcast Studio in the heart of downtown New York City, my hometown, Tribeca, this is The Conversation. I am Tommy Weber. Welcome aboard on a gloomy early fall day. Gloomy for more than one reason here in New York City, of course. The Yankees and four games succumbing to the superior Boston Red Sox, who just seem to be uh, beating the Yankees to the punch in every shape, manner, or form, including... Uh, in the dugouts. Um, something I'd like to discuss right away is the uh, Yankee demise, a team that won 100 games. The Red Sox won 108 and took their foot off the gas pretty early. So I think uh, the Red Sox were far more than eight games better than the Yankees, who had to really play until almost the end of the season so they can guarantee themselves the home t- uh, field in the wild card game. So um, my observations from this series, I think the Yankees have a lot of work ahead of them. I think they are... Uh, as close to uh, going in the wrong direction as they are to going in the right direction unless they make a couple of really big moves uh, and important moves that they have to really consider. First and foremost, uh, I think the Yankees have to start thinking about what's going to happen with Gary Sanchez. Uh, If anybody was looking at any of these games, and that's why I enjoy watching the games without any sound, so that I'm not not influenced by what I hear and actually uh, not influenced by what I don't hear because you are influenced by what you don't hear. If you watch a game with the sound on and commentators aren't commenting on something, you're less likely to retain it uh, as part of your uh, post-mortem when you take a look at the game and what happened and what the critical plays were. And I am deafened by the silence of uh, every color commentator and and play-by-play guy who does not make enough Uh, of Gary Sanchez's defensive indifference and ineptitude. Last year, it seemed like just indifference. This year, it's clearly ineptitude. Gary Sanchez can't catch. Uh, He literally can't catch. He struggles catching the thrown ball. Um, Aside from the fact that he's not a good blocker of the ball, he whiffs on a lot of balls. In that first inning in game four... um, he 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 whiffed on three balls. Uh, nobody noticed it because uh, Severino got out of that inning. Uh, but I think this is a really big problem. And I cannot believe that behind closed doors, the Yankees aren't scratching their heads and saying, you know, here's a kid that was in our organization for the last 10 years. Uh, what are we doing with him that he's such an inept defender? I don't want to hear about his throwing arm. I don't want to hear about his hitting. Uh, I don't know of any great players that have ever hit 185 for a season. If I were the Yankees, this would be a concern of mine. Perhaps Greg Bird is doing them a favor by being so inept offensively this year. Maybe he's making room for the uh, seamless transition of Sanchez to go to first base because you know we've had a couple of catchers in, in New York who weren't stellar defensively, You know Mike Piazza being one who was a very poor catcher. Uh, but Piazza caught the ball. Uh, he couldn't do anything else with it once he caught it, but he caught the ball. Uh, Sanchez is not even catching balls. And I don't want to hear about guys throwing harder and hell if you know if you never caught and... Uh, Catching the ball is not that difficult. You know where it's going to be. Guys aren't throwing balls in the dirt all the time. Uh, all you got to do is catch up to the speed, which you do very readily when you're facing it or catching it on a regular basis. So uh, I think the Yankees have a really big problem behind the plate. Uh, 
Um, I never liked the um, Stanton move. I thought the Yankees were going to have to pay an awful lot of money to have a guy be a designated hitter. Uh, and um, as with many stats, very misleading. I watched the Yankees play almost every day, and uh, a 266 guy with 100 RBIs who you have to pay $32 million to, um, who doesn't play the field. And he doesn't play the field for a reason. He's not a good fielder. And as you get older, you're not going to be a better fielder. So the Yankees are now also married to a guy who uh, failed in the playoffs. And uh, some guys get here and just can't handle uh, the big spotlight. And that remains to be seen uh, as we go forward. Lastly, um, I think the Yankees made a mistake in getting rid of Joe Girardi and hiring Aaron Boone. Uh, It's not easy to manage. And it's made even more difficult when... You come out of the announcer's booth after not having been really in the game for 10 or 12 years. Announcing games on television is not being involved with the day-to-day grind and the differences and the progresses and the changes that are made in the game over a long swath of time. Uh, You know, showing up at the ballpark a couple of hours earlier. Uh, not traveling, not going through that grind, and just not being in the flow of season after season. Uh, It's very, very difficult for you to now seamlessly step into a major league dugout uh, where the game is really fast and you've got, you know, all the the bright lights of Broadway shining on you, especially in New York City, and, and do a really good job. And I think Boom was exposed. I think one of the greatest differences between the teams, aside from the player personnel and the player personnel difference, Do not (laughs) underestimate it. It is big. It's a wide margin. The Red Sox are a lot better than the Yankees. Um, But one of the biggest differences is in those dugouts. Alex Cora is a guy who the second he finished playing was had his eyes on managing a major league team. So he coached uh, his whole entire post-playing career has been as a coach. And he wound up last year on a World Series winning Houston Astros staff and got the job with the Boston Red Sox. That's really the way to do it. You know, you don't come out of West Point and then command, you know, the troops as a general. You know, you go through the ranks because that's how you develop uh, your leadership skills. And I think there are th- issues with the Yankees that are as plain as the nose on your face. I mean, I think the I, the notion that in the most important game of the season, your pitcher's not ready to go down into the bullpen and get ready. You know, that speaks to a uh, a systemic issue. I don't know that that's an issue that hap- that speaks to that instant. It really speaks to a climate around your clubhouse. Um, and I think the Gary Sanchez thing does too. Uh, one of the main reasons Joe, Joe Girardi wasn't asked back was he held Sanchez's feet to the fire, which is what you need your manager to do. Your manager's got to be the adult in the room. He's got to be the guy that prevents you or protects you anyway from yourself because you're a young baseball player. And uh, like any young guy with tremendous ability, you sometimes do things that aren't in your best interest. That's what a manager is supposed to do. He's not just supposed to be a guy who believes in analytics, has a binder, and is going to listen to the matchups and play certain guys in certain spots. Anybody could do that. The reason why you log the time as a coach, the reason why you need experience is because there are situations that come up that just don't fall within the purview of your analytic reality. Uh, and, and, and a guy like, you know, Cora just looks like the type of guy who is very bright, has a very high baseball IQ. And, uh, I don't think he apologizes for anything. And I think he enjoys stepping on your throat and beating you. And that's an integral ingredient in being a a winner. 
And I just didn't see that in Aaron Boone. And I also saw some serious lapses in his strategies. Uh, when to de- when to take pitches out, who to pinch, how you go in your last game and you don't play. The kid who's going to win the rookie of the year, or at least is going to be in the top two or three in the rookie of the year, Andujar, is, be- is beyond me. You got to go with the guys who are the, are the best. And it, you traded... You you traded Neil Walker. You took Neil Walker instead of uh, Andujar. Come on, Neil Walker is a nice player. He's a veteran. He's on the wrong side of thirty. Good good fill in role player. But man, when everything's on the line, you got to go with your your best guys uh, because those are the guys that have gotten you there and they have the highest ceilings. So um, we are going to do something a little bit different tonight. I'm going to be riding solo. I got some emails from some people. Some of my students have some questions, some things they want me to comment on. And when we get back, as you listen to Winton Kelly, the piano solo from Freddie Freeloader, Kind of Blue, the greatest, in my opinion, uh, coming together of musical virtuosity in the history of recorded music. Kind of Blue, Miles, Bill Evans, Coltrane, Cannonball, just an incredible Paul Chambers. Uh, we are going to be right back after this. You're listening to The Conversation with Tommy Weber. We'll be right back. This episode of The Conversation with Tommy Weber is brought to you by 4momalz.com. Join the fight against Alzheimer's and support our good friends, Hunter and Braden Bishop, as they bring awareness to a struggle that many families face through their charity, 4mom. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at hashtag 4mom. And for all your mortgage needs, call Northern Security Capital Corp., the New York area's most dedicated mortgage broker. If you're buying or refinancing a home, there's only one place to go. Call Northern Security Capital Corp. today at 718-273-1010. And now, back to the show. We are back. Conversation is going to be a little different tonight. Uh, I'm going to be riding solo. I got a bunch of emails, a lot of requests, things people want me to talk about. So uh, we're going to try that out tonight and see how it flies. Um, Let's see. We got Neil from Staten Island with an email. I know a guy named Neil from Staten Island. That can't be the same guy. Anyway, he wants me to discuss uh, a lot of the conversation around college baseball is division one, two, three, where you should play, why you should play. Um, You know, I see um, a lot of people who, um, when they're training their kids and they put their kids involved in baseball, all they want to get is their kid to get a scholarship. And I understand that. It's a great thing. And um, obviously, with the cost of school today, every little bit helps. Uh, The cautionary tale, of course, is you got to make sure that your kid can play at a certain level. And that's a very, very difficult decision to make because everybody thinks their kid is an outstanding player, and if he just gets a chance, that he'll be able to play at the highest level. Well, we all know that that's not quite true. Having said that, though, what I really am starting to notice, especially on social media, is coaches, players, fans, writers, weighing in on uh, Division One versus Division Three and that kind of thing, and equivocating almost that uh, there is a sameness to the levels, and nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, I'll say this. Uh, there's never been a greater chasm 
between uh, the level of play at the Division One level and the level of play at the Division Three level. Um, uh, the reduction in the player pool has served to make that gap between Division Three, Two, and One greater than it ever has been. The top still has the top players, but what happens is when the player pool shrinks, as you get closer to the bottom, that player uh, is, is a certainly less skilled player than he ever was because you just don't have enough players. Um, there is nothing like playing Division One baseball. You play 25% more games. Uh, you have a vastly greater budget, better facilities, better travel. And the priority of baseball when it's Division One is far greater at the institution, nine times out of 10, than it is when it's Division Three. So for people to say there's no difference, uh, they're suffering, especially the coaches at the Division Three level, are suffering what I like to call from Division One envy. Uh, and sometimes it is very, very easy to detect because uh, a lot of coaches actually operate under the fantasy of, uh, you know, if we could have a shot at a crack at Division One teams that we would compete, or if we took a Division Three All Star game and played Division One guys, that our best Division Three guys uh, could compete at the Division One level. The simple answer to that is that they can't. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and the eating is the Major League Draft. And of the twelve hundred players that are selected in the Major League Draft, there's usually no more than nine or ten who come from the Division Three level. Uh, Major League Baseball has no agenda and no axe to grind. <laughs> uh, they're going to take the best players, whether the Division One. Two, three, four, or ten. So um, the top of the food chain, Major League Baseball, also concurs that the Division Three level is the lowest level of baseball that's played in college. And there's nothing wrong with that. You could still have a great Division Three experience. You could still uh, Division Three could be the should be the way many kids go. Uh, a lot of kids do aim too high. Uh, I could name fifty people I know whose kids wound up sitting the bench at some Division I school because ostensibly they wanted to tell their friends you know, around the water cooler at work that their sons are playing Division I baseball, wanted to wear the gear and get the bag as their kid was getting 25 at-bats a season. And ostensibly at a Division I school, baseball is like a job. It literally is. You have a job. It's very hard to graduate in four years. It's a very, very time-consuming proposition. So uh, if you're not cut out for that, and if you don't have the skill level to compete at that level, Division II and Division III certainly are better options for you. But nine times out of ten, the kid who is playing at the Division I level uh, is a far superior athlete and player in every shape, manner, and form to the kid who's at the Division Three level. So you coaches out there that are on Twitter and social media talking about, uh, you know, the equivocating the two, uh, I think you're doing everybody a disservice. And uh, it shows, in my opinion, a lack of gratitude. You got to be happy with where you are, whether it's one, two, or three. You have to accept where you are and do the best job you possibly can. Uh, and there are a lot of guys out there at the Division Three level that are doing a great job. And there are a lot of guys at the Division One level that are doing a poor job. But nonetheless, um, the lion's share of the players at the Division One le- level are far superior. And that is the level that most kids should and do aspire to. Now, that's a difficult a place to get to where you have to make the decision that you don't quite measure up, uh, especially when your parents have put in all this time, energy, and money. Um, uh, But some people play a Yamaha piano and some play a Steinway. No one thinks Steinway is the same as a Yamaha, but you could play both pianos. So if you're a Yamaha, except being a Yamaha, and if you're a Steinway, except being a Steinway.
Um, so tonight, again, uh, Neil from Staten Island, thank you very much for that, uh, that email and allowing me to expound on something that I have noticed is becoming a little too prevalent, uh, especially on social media where uh, people really should be more responsible about the messages they send out because that means that's the message you're giving parents and you're also giving kids. Uh, what you want to try to do is be as accurate as possible. Um, it's a difficult issue to, to broach, but I'm glad we did tonight. Okay. Next, we got an email. Um, let's see, Jason from Houston. I know a Jason from Houston. Can't be the same guy. Okay, Houston, great town, great food town. Um, got a couple of buddies down in Houston. Houston is a town right now. It's very hot with those Astros. Uh, wants to say, what's he say? He asks, talk about the home runs and the reliance on home runs and whether or not the stat of the home run is overrated. Um, well, the stat, yeah, the home, the home run in and of itself is overrated. Obviously, if that's all you do, the Yankees are a prime example of a team that really had a lot of difficulty scoring. Um, if they didn't hit home runs, if you're a one dimensional team, the, the one thing you don't want to be, if you're one dimensional is you don't want to be power, uh, because power tends to be a streaky and also power gets, the plug gets pulled on power very quickly especially in the playoffs when you're facing ace pitching. Um, I would imagine the thing you'd like to be one-dimensional about that you could probably, let me think, the thing you'd be one-dimensional about is probably speed because speed covers uh, not only uh, on the basis scoring runs, but speed is also your best defender. If you could shrink the field and have a lot of fast guys on the field that cover ground, uh, you wouldn't mind being a one-dimensional team. Throughout history, a lot of teams have been speed teams. Those Cardinal teams in the 80s were great teams. Uh, the Kansas City Royals were a speed team in 2015. They had a lot of speed on that team. Um, so, um, But power, uh, power is a, a, a difficult master to serve because... Uh, it goes to sleep on you. It really does. And especially when you need it most in the playoffs, if you can't manufacture runs and you saw what the Red Sox did to the Yankees and what the Astros do with these tough at-bats and they just grind every single at-bat and they 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 ring you dry. They really do. Uh, they get into your bullpen early and then they just pound you and weigh you down. Um, the great Yankee team in 98, that was the best team I ever saw. I thought that, that the composition of that team should be the uh, blueprint for every team that came after it. You, you, you look at that team, a lot of high average hitters, great defense, uh, enough power uh, so that it was spread over enough of the team so that it wasn't two or three guy dependent. You didn't have two or three guys hitting 40 home runs. You had a lot of guys at 17 and 19 and 22. So you were going to get a smattering of power on a regular basis. One guy went, one guy went south, another guy came up and, and, and hit a home run. So um, just enough power to keep teams honest, but high average, lots of walks, high on base percentage. Uh, those are the things that make you score runs on a consistent basis. Home runs are great for fans. Home runs are great for stats. But if all you do is hit home runs, you're going to have long periods of time where you go south. And if you don't have fantastic pitching, you could go on long losing streaks. And I, and I think... Um, although it's a small sample pool, uh, this series really did enlighten us as to uh, what your priorities need to be if you want to be a big league club that wins a lot of games and goes deep into playoffs when you're starting to face the best pitching. Um, you got to get on base. You got to score runs. In 1982, the St. Louis Cardinals had a almost, I think, over 150 fewer home runs than the Milwaukee Brewers. They beat the Milwaukee Brewers in the World Series. That's 
startling. It's 150 less home runs. The Brewers had a bunch of, you know, I think they had Ben Ogilvie and Gorman Thomas and Paul Molitor was on that team and Robin Yount and Don Money. They had just tremendous power on that team. Uh, and uh, the, Bre- the Brewers lost in the World Series. Um, I-, I think if I had one team that I could face that I'd feel the most confident about, it's a team that comes in who is a bashing team, and that's how they get their runs. The team that can run, walk, defend, uh, and have starting pitching go long into games, that's a team that scares me. But on the offensive side of it, uh, I'm the most afraid of a team that gets fantastic at-bats, gets a lot of walks, lots of hits, just keeps passing the baton to the next guy and wears you down. Um, We are going to uh, take a break right now. Um, We're going to... These guys were so good. Are you a Wilbury? Do you have the wit, cool, and credibility to be a Wilbury? I know a lot of guys that are... And a lot of guys that wish they were. And a lot of guys who pose as if they are. Traveling Wilburys. A Beetle. Dylan. Are you kidding me? Roy Orbison. We will be right back after this. Gotta love the bridge. Yeah, baby. Tom Petty. Jeff Lynn. Awesome. Traveling Wilburys, we are back. Are you a Wilbury? Got a couple more emails and uh, having fun. We got Miles checking it out, running the glass. How you doing, Miles? Good? All good? Miles just gave me a thumbs up. It's got the right name, Miles, right? There you go. How could you dislike a guy named Miles? Uh, we got a couple more emails. Um, I'm having fun doing this. This is a cool format. Uh, we got a lot of great guys coming up. We got Matt Festa, Major League Pitcher with the uh, Seattle Mariners, going to be doing the podcast. I believe he's going to be up next week. We got Mickey Gasper coming back, Chandler Taylor coming back, talking about their professional baseball experiences relative to what they did uh, as amateurs. I think that will be a really interesting uh, couple of podcasts. Uh, so um, really good stuff on the way. Um, I will be headed out to Arizona State this week. Going to see some of my guys out there. It's going to be really cool hanging with them. Um, and also play some golf and beat up Hunter Bishop. So... Uh, Bish, you better be getting, uh, you better be on the range spending a lot of time because uh, bring your A game, pal. Okay. Um, okay. Next email. Miles, you ready? Next email. Here we go. Brandon and Christian from Palo Alto. Uh, Tommy, uh, parents, travel ball. What's up with that? <laughs> what's up with that? Oh, boy. You talk about opening up a can of worms. My goodness gracious. Uh, look, um, uh, it's no secret. Uh, my in my my issues with parents and you know kids involved in baseball and the and the incredible amount of resources that are put into kids' so called athletic. I hate even I I get ill even using the word career. Uh, it's not a career. 
Uh, it's a hobby. It's a game. It's something you should do because you really love to do it. Um, I think as we've become affluent as a society, I've said this many times, you know, back in the early 90s, I remember sitting in the dugout at Wagner College on a sunny day and I said, everything's changed. I didn't know why I was saying that, but I just did. I knew everything was changing. And that was really the beginning of the proliferation of travel ball and uh, crazy parents at every game and, you know, guys with their nose pressed up against the backstop and shouting instructions at kids. And these were college games, Division I college games. Uh, and I realized because I had been in the game my whole life, I've never taken a break wow, something is really different. And I think that's what it was. It was the, the beginning of uh, parents um, having, becoming more ambulatory, better educated, better employed, making more money, and now having the wherewithal, the resources to spend it on their kids' their kids' sports. Um, and, it's, and I can only speak to baseball. Um, I, I could speak to all the other sports, but baseball especially. Uh, and, and I've seen it time and time again. Um, the one common denominator between the best players I've ever had that I've ever had the pleasure of being around, whether it be, you know, whomever it was, and and they all, I've I've spoken about them for years, um, whether it's in the Cape and Pro Bowl and uh, with Staten Island Tide or in college, um, they had one thing in common. I I just didn't really get to know their parents that well. Their parents weren't around a lot. And I think that speaks to two ingredients that I think uh, are central to development and to excellence in anything. Um, one is a healthy sense of desperation. I really do believe that you need to be have to wake up every day saying, how am I going to get my ground balls today? How am I going to you know, shoot enough pucks? How am I going to shoot enough free throws? How am I going to play my scales and work on my chops on the piano or get my violin or whatever it might be that you do? Uh, I, I think if you don't wake up every day desperate to do that, um, you're behind the eight ball. You better be a, an outlier physically. Otherwise, you're going to have stru- you're going to struggle uh, becoming a master. Uh, and I think that's what this is about. You want to master a skill. Um, and I think that that healthy sense of desperation uh, is gone, uh, or at least weaned out of kids when they never need to feel desperate because they're never left alone. Second. Um, I think probably the most critical aspect of high self-esteem and high achievement is self-reliance. And if you're never left alone, and if you're never allowed to do something on your own, which a lot of kids just don't ever get to do, especially in baseball, because they are chauffeured to and from, uh, there's no more playing in the playground, that's over. Um, And there certainly aren't a lot of kids... Uh, having to catch in the street, playing pepper, hitting each other, ground balls, rundowns, innovating, improvising, uh, and imagining uh, the three things that really you need to do to develop your brain and your body um, and to organically learn a skill our kids are not doing. So um, with the proliferation of parent and adult involvement, uh, these skills that are endemic to being a master are atrophied. Uh, and they're really held back. They're they're like the, you know, the gymnasts whose puberty is delayed so that they stay small and more aerodynamic. Um, and, and and this is what I see. So uh, when you ask me about parents and travel ball, these are well-intended people. I get it. You want what's best for your kid, but um, there's a reason why when your kid gets sick, you don't treat him or her. You take them to a doctor because although you want what's best for your kid, what's best for your kid is not you treating them. It's somebody else treating them. And what's best for your kid a lot of times, especially in baseball, is to emancipate them and to find a way uh, to, to 
put them in a circumstance where they fend for themselves. Throw them into the deep end of the pool, have them get beat up a little bit, uh, have them take some bruises and take some hits and lose. Uh, maybe somebody says you suck or you're not good and they don't want to hear that anymore and they're motivated to, to get better and improve. Um, I think that uh, that's a critical aspect. Uh, it's no coincidence that if you take a look at the rise of the American athlete in baseball, the American athlete in football, and certainly in basketball, uh, that there is a corresponding link to uh, economically disenfranchised kids. You know, Yogi Berra's parents couldn't even speak English. They had no money. They didn't know what baseball was. He went to a lot with his friends and they played all day long. Uh, the, prolifer the pro proliferation of the Latin American player, uh, there's a direct correlation to the fact that they are financially underprivileged. They have nothing else to do. So they play all day and night. And when they get to America and they sign at 16 or 17, they're in no hurry to go back home. So the conditions they play under in the minor leagues, whereas the American kid might find them deplorable because his mom is not there cutting his sandwiches on the diagonal, uh, the Latin American kid thinks this is a Ritz Carlton. So he's, and he's going to be desperate not to go back to Venezuela, not to go back to Latin America. Um, and that's certainly the case in basketball and in football. There's a lot of people who play these sports who come from financially dis economically disenfranchised places, cultures, neighborhoods, families, etc. So, um, I think that, uh, the answer is in letting go. The answer is in forming leagues and, and having places for kids to go where they could do their thing on their own. When I hear a friend of mine say to me, you know, we had like six guys, you know, we had seven parents on the field practicing with us. I say, wow, what a colossal drag that must be. Just what every 12-year-old wants, more adults around don't you remember when you were 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18? <laughs> the last thing in the world you wanted was to be around adults. So I think we've got to kind of uh, reconnect to that um, and find ways to comfortably so that we don't think that when we drop our kids off at a field, it's a guarantee we're never going to see them again because somebody's going to abduct them, uh, initiate and start to create avenues and arenas where more kids can exercise free play. So Brandon and Christian, I um, thank you very much for your, uh, your email request. Um, we are going to, um, who's that guy? Yeah, baby. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, I'm going to have one more email, maybe a little commentary. And then I'm going to, as I say to my class, let you go. Rod Stewart, still kicking, has the number one album right now in his 70s. Awesome.
are back. Rod Stewart. How good is that? Hot legs. Rod's still kicking. Going <laughs> hot and heavy. No signs of slowing down. My man, Miles, killing it. Killing it today. Best engineer around. Way to go, Miles. Good job. Uh, let's see. We're going to have one more email. Maybe a little commentary. I'll, we'll hang out a little bit, and then I'm going to let you go. All right. So, next email is from someone in Tempe, Arizona. Hunter in Tempe, Arizona. Jeez. Just so happens all these places, I know people with those names. It's amazing. Well, I guess it's a coincidence. Hunter wants to know what's the most important thing uh, that you can give to young hitters for advice. Hmm. Depends upon the age, but I think it's pretty universal. I think uh, I would give the advice that there are a thousand methods, but only a few principles. Uh, principles are timeless and they're usually steeped in some kind of physical law. So uh, I would say uh, methods are for guys who want to sound smart, you know, reinvent the wheel, repackage some old edict that we all know, you know, try to rename things, which is a big popular thing now. You know, it's not the pitcher's mound anymore. It's the bump. Okay. And you can't say velocity. You have to say velo. Right. Wow. You're so inside. You're so badass. Uh, sound like an idiot most times, but, uh, nonetheless, um, I would say that uh, a couple of things. Number one is balance. And there's really nothing you do well in this life physically uh, when you're off balance. And what's a pitcher trying to do? A pitcher's trying to keep the hitter off balance. Well, if you're a hitter, you got to stay in balance. So I would do a lot of drills where uh, the goal is to stay in balance throughout your whole swing. That automatically uh, sort of gravitates the hitter towards the right tempo. Right. And tempo, again, is time. It's it's how fast you swing. Well, you can't swing as hard as you possibly can if you're going to fall down. you got to find the right tempo for you. Um, and that right tempo is whatever it is, that you could stay in perfect balance. And balance also requires strength. And when you work on your balance, you get stronger. Uh, I would uh, watch dancers and ballet dancers. They have incredible balance and in amazing strength. Uh, I would also... Uh, I would also work a lot on um, drills where you're stationary so that you could feel the sensation of hitting the ball from the ground up. Nine times out of ten, guys hit the ball from the top down. Uh, and you really got to feel what it's like to hit the ball uh, from your center. You know, you, it's, it's all about centrifugal force. All your power and strength and speed comes from your mass moving, not from your hands moving. Uh, the dog has to wag the tail. The tail does not wag the dog. Um, those are principles. And then uh, I would let the kid find his way and have him realize that it's about craft. It's not about the secret. There is no secret. The secret, as Ben Hogan said, is in the dirt. Go find it. You got to take thousands and thousands of swings. I maintain that most players in the 21st century don't take enough ground balls, don't take enough fly balls, don't throw enough, and don't take enough BP. They just don't. It's a craft. It's like anything else. The more you do it, the better you'll get. Volume has to be a, a centerpiece of your development. I understand you want to practice perfect, and I get that. Um, but, but, you got to practice a lot. I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry, that's a that's a sobering reality for most people because we live in a shortcut world, especially in social media and technology has allowed us to enjoy the luxury of instant gratification. Well, you can't get instant gratification when you're trying to learn a skill. You know, playing the piano or the violin or, or the guitar or learning how to become a carpenter or a painter uh, or a baseball player or uh, a hockey goalie is going to take an awful lot of time and way more time than you could possibly imagine. Um, so uh, in an age where people are told day and night, shut it down, get rest, the importance of rest. Listen, you know, if you're young, your window is shutting very quickly. So my advice to a young hitter is balance a lot of those from the ground up drills and uh, now go find it and take thousands and thousands of swings because as Jim Cott said, it'll rust out before it wears out. Uh, we are far too cautious about injuries um, and, and I think players are being compromised as, as a result of it. So um, I hope you enjoyed this new format. Miles, what do you think? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up from my, if I get a thumbs up from Miles, it's got to be a pretty good show. Um, I want to tell everybody how grateful I am that I get the opportunity to do this. And for those people who have been so kind to me and uh, encouraging me to continue to do it, I want to thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad that you listened. I hope you get something out of it. Uh, we are going to uh, have some guests coming out soon that are going to be really, really cool. So um, I'm going to leave you with an iconic song from one of the truly great voices and it's a really iconic New York tune. The video is so poignant. Um, this is Carly Simon. What a tune. This is Tommy Weber in the conversation saying... Thanks, Mom and Dad. We will see you again. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to The Conversation with Tommy Weber. Have any thoughts on today's episode? Ideas for a new one? Join the conversation on Twitter at TommyWeberBball or Instagram at TommyWeberBaseball and share your thoughts. Tommy's back next week with a new episode of The Conversation. Subscribe and listen for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Stitcher. And of course, always at TommyWeberBaseball.com. Come.